morning, everybody. Ah, come on, lads. Where's the smiles? You look all very grumpy this morning. Usually that's me. It's the hair change, that's right. So, good morning. You're all more than welcome. Philippians chapter 1. We'll be finishing out the chapter this morning, verses 19 through to 30. If you need a Bible, please raise your hand, and we'll get one to you. Now, last week, um, I did an introduction to the letter, and as we know, the city of Philippi was in an area, it's now a, a heap of ruinous heap, is in the area of Macedonia, which is in northeastern, um, northeastern Greece. Uh, Philippi was the second city of the region. It was a, a Roman city, and everyone that lived there was a Roman citizen. And we, I spoke about the, the advantages that came with that. Um, and the theme of Paul's letter to the Philippians, it's, it's joy. Joy in the midst of our suffering. Joy despite our, our circumstance. Which really is incredible when you take into account that Paul wrote this letter while he was under house arrest in, in Rome. And the guy, he was, he was awaiting his trial. And he had no idea what way that was going to turn out. He could. There was a strong possibility that he could have been executed. So Paul told the Philippians in the opening verse that Timothy, a trusted friend and co-worker with him, um, was with him in Rome. And he writes how it was such a joy for Paul to pray for the church in, in Philippi. And he had a really close relationship with this church. And we see that through this letter. And then he goes on to thank God for the partnership that that church had with him. The, the Philippians supported Paul from the very beginning. Obviously, he was the founder of the church. And this was a church that was just as committed to reaching the lost with the gospel as he was. So as I said, they, they held a special place in Paul's heart. And he wanted nothing more than to go back and visit them. Then in verses 9 to 11, we saw Paul's prayer that their love would grow more and more. But that love, as he tells them, must have an element of knowledge and discernment. It's a type of love that, that discerns. It looks beneath the surface. It's a love that tries to determine how our actions affect other people. And Paul concluded his prayer by asking the Lord that they be, in verse 11, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus to the glory and praise of God. And then in verses 12 to 14, Paul, he addresses their concerns for him in that he describes his captivity. It's kind of strange for us to look at it in, the, in this perspective. In that he, he describes his captivity as a blessing. Because not only has he shared the gospel with, with hundreds of Caesar's imperial forces, his imperial guards, um, but also that his chains and his 
boldness for the gospel in, in captivity has encouraged other believers in Rome, in the Roman churches, to be just as bold as him. So they saw Paul, well, look, if he can do it in chains, then surely we can do it in our freedom. And then Paul, finally last week, we saw he, how he addressed those, um, those preachers who preached out of, of selfish, um, self-centered uh, motivation. And he, he concluded, and this is, this is really interesting, he said, he didn't really care about their motives. Just as long as the true gospel was being proclaimed, and he kind of said then, well, look, let God deal with their hearts. In the end, God will work through them. He will deal with, um, he will deal with the situation with these individuals. So Paul, it was clear, he didn't want the church in Philippi to feel sorry for them, for him, but to rejoice. He wanted them to praise the Lord for this wonderful opportunity that Paul had. Even though he was in chains, he was under house arrest. So people could freely come and go. And a lot of people did. A lot of people heard the gospel. So now Paul continues in his encouragement. And he does this by sharing his, his confidence that he had in his present situation. He believed that everything that was happening to him was for the furtherance of the gospel. His experiences, whether they be good or bad, were all adding to the glory of Jesus Christ. All of it. And that is what he says here in verse 19, which is our first verse this morning. So he says, For I know that though your prayers, that through your prayers and help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Now, Paul, as I said, he had a hope that he might be released. And he knew that if that freedom did come, that it would only come through the prayers of the faithful, praying according to God's will, but also through the power of the Holy Spirit. So Paul understood the need and the importance of prayer. He never thought for one moment that he could do the work of God without the prayers of God's people. And we see this throughout his letters. He asks the, the, the church in Thessalonica, the, the, the Thessalonian church was the next church he visited after, he, wrote, after um, he visited and founded Philippi. He simply asked them, he said, look, brothers, pray for us. He wrote in his second letter to the church in Corinth, it said, you also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. So, and I know you know this, but sometimes I think we, we lose focus of it. Our prayers matter. Our prayers change things. Our prayers help people. And I find it really encouraging when someone comes up to me and says, well, how are you keeping? Just let you know, I'm praying for you. It's so encouraging, isn't it? It's an expression of love. And now Paul speaks about the, his expectations. So he shares with this church his own hopes. And the first one, his first hope, 
And it's an expectation of himself. It's that he would never be ashamed. Verse 20. As it is my eager expectation and hope. So this is a hope-filled desire. This isn't wishful thinking like we see the word hope as being. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. But that with full courage. Now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul had had, and he had no control on whether he would be released. But he could control, the only thing that he could control was the way in which he lived day to day. So here was a man who wanted nothing more but to bring honor to the Lord. His was a daily surrender to what God wanted to do in and through his life. It was a life of holiness. Paul wrote in his first letter to the church in Corinth. He says, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So I'm called, we all are, in fact, we are commanded to cleanse ourselves from all sin and to pursue a life of holiness. Now, Paul, he didn't see like others did. He saw no shame in his captivity because he knew he was there for a reason. It was God's will. He was there because of preaching the gospel message. But what Paul doesn't want was to stand before God and be ashamed of anything that he has done. So he was very watchful about how he lived his life, especially now that he was living under these extremely different circum difficult circumstances. He could be dragged out at any time and beheaded. So he searched himself for anything that might cause him to stumble, anything that might cause him to sin. Because people were watching. He was chained to these imperial guards. And he saw his testimony as being more important than what he was physically suffering. His desire was to glorify God no matter where he ended up. Even if he wasn't released, he would still exalt. Even unto death, he would still honor Christ. Paul wanted his life to shine for Jesus. And it would be through the prayers of the Philippians, prayers of the saints, and through the help of the Holy Spirit, that his desire would become a reality. So Paul, he cared deeply about his witness for Jesus Christ. He cared for it more than his life, life itself. You know, maybe you're here this morning and you're struggling. You're going through something that you certainly would not choose for yourself. So what's the answer? What do you do? Well, what did Paul do here? 
He surrendered everything to God's will. He placed it at the foot of the cross. And he glorified God in the very place that God had put him. But how do we do such a thing? Like Paul, prayer. It is going to God. It is asking for help. It is going to people and asking for prayer. Paul wanted nothing more but to continue as a fearless witness for the gospel. This man, he wanted to finish well. And years later, and written just before he was executed, he would write to his good friend Timothy, who was, who was with him now in Rome. He said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And there's such a sense of relief in this verse. You know, Paul is like screaming, I did it. Paul fought the good fight to get the gospel out. And it was a fight against his own flesh. Paul wasn't perfect. It was a fight against the world and the persecution that came his way. And it was a fight against Satan himself. But as Paul says, a fight worth fighting. Now, there are some fights within church bodies which we shouldn't go there, but this was a fight that was worth it. And he's telling us here this morning, do not give up. Keep the faith. Paul had finished the race, and he was now, he was waiting, wasn't he? This is his second imprisonment I'm talking about. He was waiting, waiting for his departure, waiting for the executioner's block. He continues in 2 Timothy 4.8. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So that's us. That's every believer here this morning. See, Paul knew that the best part of his life was about to come. It was about to kick off. And it started with death. And that's the truth that you and I, we must understand. We will face troubles and loss. We will have struggles. Persecution is promised for all those who proclaim, who, who live out the truth of the gospel message. But we have a crown of righteousness to look forward to. So this was a victor's crown, a trophy that recognized someone who had won the race in accordance to the rules. Church, we need to be reminding ourselves and each other that the best is yet to come. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 2.9, No eye have seen, no ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Amen? That encourages me. But in the meantime, we are to be prepared in season and out of season to declare the truth of the gospel message. 
We need to be prepared. We need to be studied up. We need to be reading and studying scripture. We need to be living it out day by day, looking at ourselves, looking to see if there are things that we need to lay at the foot of the cross. We are to stay the course, looking to Jesus every single step of the way. Paul reminded, sorry, Paul remained faithful both in life and in death. And he found peace, peace, when he surrendered everything to Jesus. And then he says in 21, verse 21, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Paul desired nothing more than to bring all honor to the Lord. And if that's you, if you desire that same thing, then I guarantee you that you will stand out. People will see that you are different. And sometimes people don't like different. Now, some will say that they live for the weekend. Everybody lives for something. That they live to go out to get drunk, to have a good time. Some live for their career. Some live for their families, for money. But they can't take it with them. When you die... They lose all those things, everything, money, power, fame, family, gone. You lose it. You cannot bring it with you. Therefore, anything but Christ is loss. Only Jesus Christ makes dying gain. To live is to experience the joy that comes when we live for Christ. There is a joy in that. But death, it is even better. Because we go to be with the Lord. So for us, death is profit. It is gain. If Paul was to die at the hands of Caesar, then he goes home to be with the Lord. If he's set free, then he gets to continue to proclaim the gospel message, to encourage fellow believers, to start up more churches. It was a win-win situation. Such an incredible attitude to have. No wonder this man was so full of joy. Church, we have an incredible future ahead of us because heaven awaits. So why would we not want to live our lives that, to, that brings glory to God? In fact, our sufferings in this life are an opportunity for unbelievers to see Jesus Christ in us. Warren Wiersbe, he said, and I quote, when they see a Christian go through a crisis experience, they ought to be able to see how big Jesus Christ really is. Suffering is an opportunity for us to point people to our strength, to our hope, to our salvation, to point people to Jesus Christ because that is where all those things are found. They're not found within ourselves. They're found in Jesus. Verse 22. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. Paul didn't see his imprisonment as a waste. 
He saw every day as an opportunity to share Christ. He put his suffering to one side. He put himself to one side. Jesus was his focus. To live for Paul was to win people for Christ, but to die was even better because he gets to go home. Verse 23. Then he says, I'm hard-pressed between the two, between life and death. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. So we see this conflict within him. On one hand, living meant to further the, further the, the church, the gospel. It meant that he continue in his service to the Lord, but death meant to be in heaven. It would be an end to this man's struggling, his suffering. It would be an end to his battle with the flesh and with sin. But to remain, verse 24, in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Paul wanted God's will for his life. And as long as the Lord allowed him to live, he would continue to endure the suffering and persecution that came from preaching the gospel. He would continue in helping other people with their relationship with the Lord. And church, that is our purpose. To grow in our relationship with God, to die to self, to proclaim the gospel, to win souls for Jesus. That's what it's all about, isn't it? It is. And it is the only thing that matters. It is the only thing that has eternal value. The only thing that you and I can take with us. Because everything else is left behind. Verse 25 to 26. So Paul was convinced of this. I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Now Paul believed that he, he had a feeling that he would be released which was a good thing because there were people who in this church that needed him. He believed that his work back in Philippi wasn't finished. And notice how Paul points to the fact that as our faith grows, as our knowledge of Jesus deepens, as we live out our faith, our joy increases. Now, we know from church history that Paul was, in fact, released from house arrest. This happened in 62 AD. But two years later, he was arrested. He was imprisoned again, brought back to Rome. Uh, but this time, he would be beheaded for his faith. But that wasn't the end. Because nothing, nothing can impede the progress of the gospel message. Nothing. Not even Paul's death. Jesus told Peter in Matthew 16, he said, you are Peter on this church, referring to himself. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Prison cells, chains, persecution, governments, they've tried, but they have failed to stop the good news. They failed. 
Satan himself cannot stop the gospel from being proclaimed. He just can't do it. Now Paul tells the Philippians how they should act in his absence. Verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now this word manner, it comes from the Greek word politics, which means to live as a citizen. So just as the citizens of Philippi were to be good Roman citizens, Christians are expected, commanded in fact, to be good citizens of heaven. Church, we are heavenly ambassadors. This is not our home. Paul commands them to live a life worthy of the gospel. He said the same thing to the church in Ephesus. Ephesus 4.1. He says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Also to the church in Colossae. Paul wrote in Colossians 1.10. Walk in the manner worthy of the Lord. Guys, we must be living our lives in a way that's consistent with the gospel. We need to practice what we preach. Because if we don't, and people would be right, they're not going to take us serious. But what does that living, what does that living a life worthy of the gospel look like? Paul tells us. In the second part of verse 27. So that whether I may see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing. Here we go. Firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So Paul tells, look, whether I'm released or not, don't let that concern you. What you need to do is hold your ground in the face of opposition. What you need to do is stand firm in one spirit. So Paul is talking about church unity here. They were to stand together with one mind, striving together for the one common goal, and that goal is the gospel. So regardless of what happened to him, Paul wanted these believers to work together to get the good news out, to get it out there. Verse 28. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. So here we have Paul talking about opposition. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. So Paul said, look, do not be concerned when people come against you. In fact, it's a good thing. Because it's a sign that something is happening. It's a sign that you are having an effect on your community, on your city. And church, the last thing that Satan wants is this church to be unified, to be one, with the one goal and purpose of proclaiming the good news about Jesus Christ. That terrifies him. That's why he attacks the church. He attacks the fellowship the unity between believers. But the, proof of their accused, but the proof of their salvation was that there was a reaction, that Satan was not happy. Speaking of the city of Ephesus, Paul wrote in his letter to the church in Corinth, 
He says, a, a, a great door of effective work has opened to me, but there are many who oppose it. 1 Corinthians 16, 9, if you're taking notes. Paul wrote in his second letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy 4, 14. He said, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him accordingly to his deeds. And then he warns Timothy. He said, look, take note of this guy. Keep away from him because he strongly opposes our message. And there are a lot of people who oppose Jesus. And that's why they fight against the gospel. But as Paul says, they are on their way to destruction. So again, he's talking about eternal consequences here. Our eternal consequence is gain. It's profit because we be with the Lord. But for an unbeliever, it's not. Verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Paul teaches that both faith and suffering were part of a faithful Christian living. Just as death was gained for Paul, it is gained for every, every believer. And didn't Jesus warn his disciples of the same thing? That when he goes, that persecution would come their way. That they would not be able to avoid it. And it would come first at the hands of the religious establishment. They would be thrown out of the synagogues. They would be excommunicated. They would lose their jobs. They would lose their families and friends. That's what Jesus promises. He told them in John 16, verses 1 to 4. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think that they are doing God a favor, a service. And isn't that what Paul thought? He thought he was doing God a favor by persecuting uh, Christians. He put them to death. Jesus continues. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when the air comes, you may remember that I have told you. So Jesus tells them, don't be shocked when these things happen. Don't be taken off guard. So we are called to share in Christ's suffering, in his persecution. But we are also sharing in his love aren't we? In the joy that comes from, from being a believer. When we think about the promises that await, how can we not be joyful? Paul wrote to the Romans, chapter 8, verse 18. He said, For I consider all suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be real, revealed to us. So this word consider in the Greek means to weigh something. And here is another way in which we can get through the difficulties in this life. We take all the suffering and pain, all the hardship, the disappointment, and we compare, to, we compare it to heaven, to what awaits us. 
when we go to be with the Lord. As Paul says, there's no comparison, none whatsoever. Our suffering is temporary, but our glorification is forever, forever. Paul said the same thing to the church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians 4.17. For our present troubles are small and they won't last very long. Yet they produce for us a glory vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So there were times in Paul's life when he thought about the treasures that awaited him in heaven. And I'm sure he did it frequently because he had it tough, didn't he? He faced immense persecution. And Paul ends this chapter by speaking about his own suffering. He says, engage, verse 30, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had. So they saw his persecution. They saw how this church was founded by him and Silas being in prison in Philippi. And now here that I still have. So he's still being persecuted for his faith. But Paul, he believed it to be an honor. And whether they wanted it or not, Both Paul and the Philippians were in this struggle together. And I finish on this. And church, we're in the same struggle. Your love, your faithfulness to the Lord, I can guarantee you, Jesus guarantees that it will bring opposition. Because when you stand up for what is right, when you live your life for Jesus... Suffering will come your way. And as Paul tells us, it's a privilege. It's an absolute privilege. Amen? So as the the worship team comes up, I just remind you the elements of communion, both in the back and up here in the front. Jesus said, do this in memory of me. So let's, re- let, let's remind ourselves of, of the pain and suffering that Jesus went through for all this to be possible, for our glorification to be guaranteed. Let's do business with the Lord. Let's lay any sin now at the foot of the cross, ask for forgiveness, ask for strength to resist, and move on, continue. Amen? So let's pray. Lord, Lord, we pray for that same joy that Paul speaks of, a joy in persecution, a joy in hardship, a joy in when life does not go our way, Lord. Lord, Holy Spirit, we ask that you remind us to pray. Remind us, Lord, to be praying for each other and to be relying on you, Lord, for the strength to do everything that we need to do so that we can declare boldly that we have finished the race, Lord, that we have lived a life that has glorified you. We need your strength, Lord. We need the prayers of the saints, Lord, for that to happen. So, Jesus, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for each and every testimony here that points to your grace, to your mercy, and to your love, Lord. We love you, Jesus. And it's an absolute privilege that we can now raise our voices, Lord. Lift our weary hands, Lord. And give you all the praise and all the thanks. We love you, Jesus. Amen.